0: Hey, it's Laura. If you're listening to this, you're not hearing the complete unedited version of this conversation. If you want in on that, you can get it by becoming a TMST Plus member. Just head over to our website at tmstpod.com and click support. All right, enjoy the show. Yeah, you're our first repeat guest.
1: Oh, wow. I know. I'm very excited about that and I'm honored.
0: Hello everyone, it's Laura, and we have a big treat for you today. But first, I want to let you know that we are still planning on airing that discussion from South by Southwest. We are not holding out on you, we just don't have the audio yet, and as soon as we do, it will be in your ears. So to those who have been asking, thank you for waiting patiently, that is the deal, and as soon as we have it, you will too. Okay, so here's the treat. We have our first ever return guest to TMST, the much-adored and much-requested Peter Rollins. For those of you who don't know peter uh well you're welcome first but he is an uh, irish author a philosopher a public speaker a theologian he's one of those people that it's kind of hard to pin down and he got his international reputation for turning the traditional notions of religion on their head but what i have found about him is that he turns Uh, so many ideas that we sort of take for granted as a matter of course on their head. And most of our conversations have been around examining sort of basic truths. And this one is no different. We brought him back, uh, not only because you'd requested him, and I love talking to him, but because we wanted to talk about certainty, or uncertainty rather, uh, and how we contend with it. And we went deep into the role of liturgical structures, which if you're like me, you may have, well, I don't know, you might have, you might be very clear on what that means, but I had this vague idea of liturgical structures as something to do with religion and the church, uh, but not really understanding. And he explains it. We spent a lot of time on it. Uh, He deconstructs what they actually are, which is at the highest level, the routines and practices that we have in our daily lives. And we talk about the importance of them, both the, the practical importance, but really the psychological importance, and in some ways, the archetypal importance. And this conversation went on for over 90 minutes, so we did have to cut quite a bit. If you want to hear the full thing, including the parts where we talk about the struggle to be close but not too close to other people, anxiety, and trauma, Uh, you can become a paying subscriber by going to tmstpod.com and joining. If not, there is so much goodness in this version as well. Uh, As always, we appreciate you being here so much. I hope you love this second go-round with Peter Rollins. How are you today?
1: I'm good. Are, is, are we officially on now? We're on, but... Oh, yeah, yeah. great. I can officially say hello. I unofficially <laughs> said hello, of course, but now yeah. I can officially say hello to you. Yeah. Um, and it's great to be back and seeing you and chatting again.
0: You, you asked a couple of days ago, you said, wait, anything special you want to talk about? And I said, yes, mm-hmm. I want to talk about uncertainty.
1: Yes. I was very happy so, when you said that because I was going, oh, you know, I'll chat about anything, but you said uncertainty. And to be honest, it's something I've been... I'm writing a book at the moment, and this is something I've been uh, doing some work on as well. So it's on it's in my oh, mind. I'm doing some courses on it. So yeah, it's up my street. Just as a little um, hint of where I would like to go, um, in yeah. case it gets boring for people, I'm going to tell them the end bit so that they still they keep listening. Okay, okay. Do uh, it. I I would love to outline four different types of uncertainty, and the last one is the most interesting the first one's the most boring and the last one's the most interesting and the last one will help us understand anxiety how how Mm. to be desirable to your partner what what makes what what invokes our desire so that's where at some stage in an hour in an hour from here we're going to get into that
0: (laughs) stick around folks for that yeah i would love Mm. that we'll 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 head in that direction we have this scripture you know that says that you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, Mm -hmm. start there, which goes beyond so far far beyond any bounds of like religious dogma or structure or anything like that. It's a human desire. Um, But what you've alluded to is that sometimes when we think we're seeking truth, what we're seeking is certainty. Mm -hmm. And so let's talk about something that – what was in that video actually, which is liturgy. And first, I want you to define what liturgy is, what you mean by liturgy.
1: Okay, good. We've already jumped into lots of very interesting things. I know, um, I know.
0: A lot in there.
1: Yeah, like at, at its most basic, what I mean by liturgy is our rituals of life. Um, it might be going and meeting a friend every Tuesday for coffee. It might be playing poker every Friday night with your friends, going to the confessional or the coffee shop, uh, you know, whatever it is. that, But certain rituals of life that we have, Some, some of us... It might be going out every Friday or Saturday night to a nightclub and dancing and listening to music. Um, yeah. And w- so when I talk about liturgies, go like we're liturgical creatures. We we, it's almost like we we need help often, uh, either in confronting our our truth, uh, which we'll come back to in a second, or in trying to hide from it. Uh, those are two very uh, uh, strong impulses. So you know, for mm-hmm. example, the liturgy of the nightclub. Uh, is sometimes a liturgy that people engage in because they're in a job that they really don't like. So nine to five, five days a week, they have to do something that makes them feel dead inside. They're making mm. money for somebody else. They're not making enough money to pay their rent. They've got financial insecurities. They're not meeting people except as objects to, to do work with. You know, So you do meet people, but right. they're, they're functions and you're a functionary of this system. And so your life is very very difficult, and you blow off steam on a Friday and a Saturday night. You go out, you drink, you get drunk, you listen to loud music, you have a a cathartic experience, which allows you to then go back into your life and do the nine-to-five again. The problem with that liturgical structure is it doesn't really help you confront things. It helps you avoid them. So what happens is you probably get into a rut where you do this every weekend, every Friday, every Saturday night, maybe even twice a week. And you use maybe alcohol or music or casual sex or whatever it is Mm -hmm. to try to avoid your truth, the truth of, of your suffering. Um, but if I, if I contrast that with, um, I always like to contrast it with the Irish pub. Uh, a few of my friends, actually, you know, one of my good friends, Jay Baker, who's, you know, he's been drive all his, all his adult life. You know, he's an AA, but he loves the Irish pub. Uh, my friend Barry's the same. He doesn't drink, loves the Irish pub. And the thing about the Irish pub is it kind of has the same liturgical structures in a nightclub. It has music, it has alcohol, and it has conversation. But, but often to a different end. So in, a, in an Irish pub, you might go in and have a drink, not to escape your problems, but to talk about them. You know, you have a drink, you, sit, or you have a coffee, and you sit and you talk about your life. Um, the music is not designed to help you be so loud and so pop that you kind of, again, just get into an ecstatic forgetfulness. But it's some sad Irish guy talking about how he lost his one true love to cholera (laughs) and how he'll never love again, right? So the music connects you with your suffering and you're able to have good conversations, not like in a nightclub where you can only say the most basic stuff because it's so loud. You can actually have a good old yarn and talk about life. There are two liturgical structures. One, I think, is, a, is designed to help you avoid the truth and the other is a liturgical structure that at its best can maybe help you encounter the truth that you would otherwise want to deny, the truth of your suffering relationships or life.
0: So do you know where the the etymology of liturgy comes from? Because I've always thought of it as a a function of the church.
1: Yeah, you know, the only thing I know, and I don't even know this very well, but I think there was a, you know, you go back far enough, and there's a real linking between drama and theater and theatrical stuff, and yeah. then and religious ritual, and there is a real yeah. kind of like melding of those two things. Is it fair to
0: say everyone has a liturgical structure to their life, consciously or not?
1: Yeah, I would say that absolutely. We have, we have, and it's almost because I mean, it sounds strange at first, although not at all when you think about it, is that we like if if we could directly encounter our emotions and our fears and our loves and our desires, we actually wouldn't really have much need for music and arts and poetry and like there's lots of things that that we wouldn't really need but and even people who hear professional criers at funerals or the or the laugh canned laughter in uh, comedies right these these all function in very interesting ways with the idea being that. We often need a song or a piece of art or um, a hug or the look of a stranger, whatever it is, to access something that we couldn't access on our own. And so really liturgical structure is simply something that enables you to unlock something that, that you can't really do on your own.
0: That's so interesting. First of all, I didn't know that there were professional criers. (laughs) Yes, yeah. (laughs) To help people cry? You
1: know, it's really interesting. The idea, even with a professional, the professional mourner is almost like I can't access my own tears. I can't access my own suffering. But so somebody else, through their tears, I get some cathartic release. I begin to very subtly be able to mourn, to be able to. To do my own mourning. So the professional crier. Um, it's it's not in our culture, but in some cultures, when you, where you have that, it's it's strangely it's like I can't even cry. I I don't even have the ability to 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 suffer yet.
0: This is fascinating to me. It's almost like the manifestation or the animation or the. I don't have a better word of archetypal energy, like that presents itself in in some kind of physical form or in metaphysical form or something like music, art, so that we can, it's almost like it has to be abstract for us, for it to to enter us. That's so interesting, this liturgical structure. Because I was thinking when you first started, as more of a, like it's a routine. Or a, a container for your life, like a rhythm that you set up.
1: Is yeah, that? No, you know, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of, I think that that is part of it, but at that deeper level, I think it has a function, a more, not, not just a containing function, but I'll call it an alphabeticizing function. Um, I, I'm not sure if we talked about this last time. Uh, did, did we talk about? Uh, the beta, beta elements and alpha elements. Do you remember? That? No. I'll, I'll mention it quickly, and I apologize to your listeners if we talked about it before. But, no, we didn't. Um, okay. I, I would have
0: remembered that. No, we didn't do anything like that. Okay.
1: Well, basically, I'm using these words from a canonical thinker called uh, Wilfred Bion, who is a psychoanalyst, and he talked about he met he talked about beta elements, and what he means by a beta element is when you're a child, when you're an infant, um, even when we're adults, but with, particularly when you're an infant. You can be overwhelmed by experience that you cannot understand. And it might be hunger, it might be coldness, it might be uh, loneliness, it might be, you know, whatever it is, There's is, you're overwhelmed with something and you can't speak it and, and an infant will then maybe cry and have a temper tantrum, whatever it is. And then Beyond says that, so these beta elements, they're they're in the child, they're in thought, but they can't be thought, you know, now, then, uh, Beyond says that the mother or the mothering one, whoever the mothering one is, is you know holds and soothes the child, sings to the child, and also begins to help the child understand what's happening to them, responding to to that beta element, and he calls this the alpha function. Um, and the reason why I love these words is at first they sound abstracts so with the beta element, the alpha function of the mothering one which then turns the beta element into an alpha element. But when you put all of this together, it says the mothering one alphabeticizes the trauma of the child. In other words, they put into language mm. the overwhelming trauma that the infant is experiencing. And and that, for me, is a little bit what liturgy can do. It's an yeah. alphabeticizing function that enables us to encounter and make sense of our suffering while never fully never fully rendering it into, uh, the, into the mind, into the symbolic, but, but partially helping us get a purchase on it.
0: That's great. What is the purpose? When you talk about liturgical structure, yeah. what's the purpose?
1: Okay. One of the purposes is mourning. And uh, Freud is very good on this, that, that what happens when we say suffer and we all suffer. There's the traumas that, that happen to us and there's the trauma that is us, the trauma that is being human. Yes. And, when, and when we're not able to mourn, to remember and to mourn and to work through something, it remains in us in an unconscious way. Uh, so in, in, you know, everyone knows that phrase, uh, gone but not forgotten. When someone has died but you remember them, Um, this realm I'm talking about is the forgotten but not gone. It's where you try to forget your suffering, you try to move on and pretend everything is good and fine, and it remains within you, and it erupts in explosions of anger, in tears for no apparent reason, in some behavior that is very unlike your day-to-day activity. It's forgotten, but it remains Mm -hmm. like a poltergeist. And so basically, the liturgical structure, by helping you mourn, it turns the poltergeist into a holy ghost. And what I mean by holy ghost is, a, well, a ghost is a presence that is absent. Right? A ghost is a presence that is, you know, so it's so somebody you love who isn't there, as I say, that knock our, our lives out of shape. But when through this kind of these activities of art and poetry and music and friendship, we're gradually able to to kind of like begin to confront those things, begin to speak them, begin to cry over them. Mm-hmm. They stop having this negative power and actually they become what's called sublimated. They actually become uh, they become elements of our betterment and our transformation.
0: Yes, got it. Like integration. It seems like what you're saying is that the healthy or the positive the, the advantage to a liturg- liturgical structure so we can metabolize, but we can only metabolize when we tell the truth about what's going on. So let's go into uncertainty. How do what is the relationship between liturgical structure, mm-hmm. liturgy and uncertainty?
1: Excited. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> people
0: who can't see Peter just pseudo-clapped his hands yeah, together like right. a little yes, kid. I am, very excited.
1: I'm overwhelmed. Yeah. Um uh yeah, so I'll get rid of the two boring types of uncertainty very quickly. We'll do that in two minutes, which is okay. so there's a type of uncertainty in which you don't know something because you haven't looked at a YouTube video or read a book on it. And that's generally what people think of with uncertainty, is that's Oh, I, I, like, I don't know what's happening outside my door at the moment because well, I haven't looked. There could be somebody walking past. There's there certain things that you just don't know. And the affect or the emotion that I think is mostly connected to this, I'll call it contingent unknowing, contingent uncertainty, is curiosity. So mm-hmm. I would attach the affect of curiosity to that type of unknowing. And I get it. I watch all these weird YouTube videos about weird subjects because sometimes I go, well, how does a computer work? Or right. what, you know, what, what is happening in a cell? You know? And then I, I have a curiosity. Uh, so there's that type of uncertainty and unknowing. Then there's a second type, which I'll call uh, maybe meaningless uncertainty, and, which is where you don't know something, Uh, someone's maybe making a claim and you don't know if it's right or not, but, uh, it's impossible to know. So if you talk to someone who's maybe has a psychotic break and they're saying that, Oh, someone has planted microbes in my brain, they're controlling my thoughts. And then you say, well, well, we, we can test for that. I've got a device that will pick up electromagnetic signals. And then the person goes, oh, no, 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 no. This device is so technologically advanced that it doesn't give off those signals. And so I go, well, we can give you an X-ray. And we'll say, oh, no, no, it doesn't show up in X-rays, right? This is an example where it's an unknowing that is meaningless because the person, it's unfalsifiable, Right. So there's that kind of unknowing. And the mm. affect that's connected to that is frustration, I think. So you know when you're you starting you get really frustrated. Um, but those are the two boring ones. Then we get okay. on to the interesting ones that are to do with liturgy and two what we're talking about. And the first is the one we've talked about a fair amount, but which is um the type of unknowing that doesn't come from a lack of knowledge but from an excess. It's an unknowing that comes from like, so for example, I can love some, I, I can't love someone I don't know because I don't know them. Right. So there's an unknowing because I don't know them. And maybe I want to go out with somebody and I'm like, I'm lonely and I want to fall in love, but I don't love a person. I just, I, I love the idea of love, but I don't love a person. Yeah. Then when I meet someone, I momentarily think, ah, oh, I know you and you know me and we're, we're one and we know each other. But then you realize, oh my goodness, there's a knowing, unknowing. I, there's so much of you I don't know. And, and being with you is kind of like, I realize that there's an abyss of unknowing that I'll mm. never penetrate to the bottom of. That is the type of mystical unknowing and uncertainty mm. that doesn't come from a lack of knowledge, but from sometimes from an excess. So this is the move, by the way, from classical physics, which says that we can understand everything in principle that's in the world. We just can't understand the fundamental event that made everything understandable, to in mm-hmm. quantum mechanics, that says, no, there's an unknowing that's built into inherently into reality itself, so that we can't know fully the velocity and the position of subatomic particles, because, and that's not a lack of knowledge, right? That's an excess of knowledge. That's a, that, that unknowing is woven into the very fabric of reality itself. Yes. Yeah. So that, that's the third. That's the third unknown. And that, that's very the mystic. That's the apocalyptic unknown.
0: Yeah. the the What you said about that it's, it's a great example or way of explaining it about when you fall in love or you yeah, when you fall in love mm. and the, the experience of feeling that there's so much that you'll never know about this person and that it is different than just curiosity, different than frustration. It's yeah, it's oh yeah,
1: I, 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 the, maybe the and the affect for that one of them. See what you think, but one of my the affect for that I think is awe. So if, yes. if the affect of the first yes. is curiosity, and the affect yes. of the second is frustration. The the central affect of this third one is awe. Yes, uh, yeah.
0: that's so good. And and awe is, I mean, from the Stoic philosophers, from it, awe is something that is talked about in ph- philosophical and spiritual contexts as being. Uh, like an essential part of living a, a good life or living a meaningful life.
1: Yes. Yes. And it's, and it's, and it's like, that's because when I hear people talk about uncertainty, sometimes because, you know, they, they think, oh, we don't know because there's a lack of knowledge, right? And that, and that makes total sense because that's, we don't know everything. Of course, we don't we know hardly anything, but that's not what the mystics are talking about. That's not what someone like yeah. Anselm is talking about, or there's this notion, there's something in re- that's, I mean, Anselm says this beautifully. He says, there's things that exist in the mind, uh, but not in reality, like those paintings behind me. Uh, no, if I did, if if they if they weren't if they didn't exist, like if I wanted to paint those, they were in my mind, not in reality. And then he says, "There's things that exist in the mind and in reality, which is when I do paint them. I didn't paint those, but I'm using example. Yeah. If, if, yeah. if I did, they exist in the mind and in reality. And then Anselm says, "It is possible that something exists in reality but cannot be contained by the mind, and that yeah. generates a different type of un- unknowing. And but it's yeah. an unknowing of excess. And, and Anselm says that is the mystical experience. So even Rudolf Otto in his famous book, The Idea of the Holy, he kind of starts off by saying, unless you felt overwhelmed by the influx of an event, he doesn't say it in these words, but he basically says the same thing. Unless you've had the mystical experience, this book's not going to be of any interest to you because it's kind of mm-hmm. an event um, that, that you feel overwhelmed by is the beginning of mystical experience. So I really like that, but I but but it's not my favorite one. But go ahead, say say. Uh, they no, looking- I'm just.
0: I I love this because these types of conversations have historically, I think, been reserved for religious contexts, yeah. and there's so much skepticism around them because of the way that they're maybe presented in or interpreted in religious contexts, and and so it and there's this idea that. Yeah, you believe in fairy tales and magic. If you believe, if you believe, quote unquote, in something like this, where to, to me, when you present it like this, it's just it's a fact. It's much as it's mu- is as much of a scientific fact as anything yeah. that there just simply are things in in the world that we cannot explain, understand interpret in our minds that we, it's, it's beyond just the the fact that we don't know the information. Yes. I, mean. I love it because it, to me, it's an argument for, I don't want I don't know if I should say this. Um, I don't want to offend anyone, but this is just where my mind is going. Like the atheism, where atheism is talked about is just, is I, I don't totally actually understand atheism, um, enough to talk about it intelligently, but to think that, like it's a denial of mystery. Hmm. At, the, at least that's how I put it, or yeah. how, how I interpret it—a denial of mystery.
1: Yeah. So, I, and funnily enough, I'm I'm doing a course at the moment. It's called Atheism for Lent, and it's kind of a. So it, and it goes over various expressions of atheism, and because you know, as you can imagine, there there's like different shapes of atheism, just as there's sure. different shapes of theism. So, w- one shape of atheism, which is you know the, the one you're mentioning, and it's kind of. Uh, it's got some interesting stuff to it but it's basically just a denial of a conceptual theism so there's religion where it goes like this this is theism this is who god is and then atheism is a rejection of that
2: now oh, yeah. interestingly okay.
1: the first theological atheism is the mystics because the mystics say that you yes you have to be an atheist because every influx of 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 an intuition that overwhelms your concept means that anytime you conceptualize that, you have to reject it because the concept yes. never matches up. So this is where actually atheism and theism are interlinked in someone like Meister Eckhart, where he says every time you say God, you have to immediately say no God. You have, you have to he says yes. n- n- nominate and denominate, name and dename. It's funny, church are called denominations to dename. So mm-hmm. it's um the idea is that that actually there is a form of there's different forms of obviously atheism, but actually within religion, uh, within mysticism, atheism has always been taken up because they go, yes, of course, as soon as you have a theism, a concept, you have to dename it. And then theology becomes a theopoetics, a type of, mm. a, as we mentioned earlier, a semi-permeable membrane that helps you to navigate the proximity with this overwhelming event and help you alphabetize it.
0: That's great. I it's it's personally just super helpful for me right now because I'm trying um, in part of what I'm writing about when it comes to um, expressing say universal love or like I don't in the context of recovery I, I I'm not comfortable talking about God in the sense that that God is like it's it's too limiting. Um, I, I'm not part of any any, religious structure or formal theology, but I very much believe in, I don't have a better word for it other than God. So it's like talking about as this mystical experience. It's just, it's giving me new language that it's, that it's very much not a binary.
2: You yeah. Know?
1: And, and, you know, and this, this is interesting that, that the word God, always a difficult word to, to use, but actually at its, at its best, the, the word God is a signifier that signifies that any signification it has is not enough. So what I mean by that is mm. that technically, when, when someone uses the word God, it, it should be in a sense of a, a signifier word that describes how no word can describe it. And, yes. that, yeah, yes. and this is the very foundation of linguistics, actually, is the idea that like democracy is a word that we can never fully describe. Freedom. Just as soon as someone thinks that mm. they can describe or, or, or actualize freedom, you'll find tyranny just around the corner.
2: Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True, and I co-created the show with Laura. We built TMST and our online community with the hope of creating a sane spot on the internet. We're really passionate about the ad-free nature of this work. Our belief is that this project will work best if we're not hustling to keep advertisers happy, and we keep our attention on you, the TMST community. This is where you can play a major role. TMST Plus is the membership group that helps to keep this podcast going. Whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are vital to this experiment. As a TMST Plus member, you get to join Laura for member-only events, send in questions for the guests, hear the complete unedited interviews, and connect with other TMST community members. You know, sometimes... We feel like we can't make a difference in the world. With a TMST Plus membership, you can be keeping this space alive and thriving for a one time gift or for as little as 10 bucks a month. You can find the link in the show description, and then please head over to TMSTpod.com right now to support the show. And thanks.
0: Man, what a predicament we humans are in with the the, the tool, the primary tool we have is language. Mm-hmm. And we can get pretty damn close, but it's never, it's only ever a symbol, our yes. best guess at a symbol.
1: Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I yet we, think
0: we only, we, we, when we think that, that it is the literal truth that we can, you know, it, it just never is. And, and when we think that it's a literal truth, we get in trouble. Like when we, when we, I guess I'm just looping back to this uncertainty thing. Like, we okay. can only ever try, you know, it goes like to the, ta- the Tao, the Tao, the Jing, where it's like, the, you know, the, basically, if you think you know it, you don't know it. Yes. And if you say it, you don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> and if you don't know it, you know, the, the Tao, what you know is not the Tao. It's like yeah. all that mind bendy yeah. stuff.
1: And the crazy thing is, all of those ideas that, that, you know, some people, you know, like, you know, sometimes, sometimes feel right off or not, whatever. They're, they're actually not, as you mentioned, they're not specifically religious. So, in, again, in linguistics, you can never eat an apple, right? So, an apple, as soon as I'm in language, when I eat an apple, I'm not just eating an apple. I'm also, it might signify health or it might signify a certain lifestyle, it might signify a rejection of my parents who maybe fed me chocolate it might be something yeah. that i like i like fruit in the kitchen because it looks nice it, if i buy a pair of jeans i'm taking these actually from a uh, great philosopher todd mcgowan uses these two examples i just realized i was using them without <laughs> yeah
0: that's okay citation you know, noted yeah
1: but if you go into like even a, a target and buy a pair of jeans you never just buy a pair of jeans so what are jeans like jeans are are a, are, a, are an item of clothing that at least originally were technically signified that you don't really care. Like they're work clothes, right? Jeans are mm. work clothes. I'm just I don't mind. I just buy the jeans. But of course, as soon as you think like that, you're going, you're not just buying jeans because you don't care. You're buying jeans because of the symbolic significance of I don't care, right? And, and even if you buy rubbish clothes and go like, I really don't care, again, you're making a statement about your values as someone who doesn't put a lot of thought into those superficial things. That yeah. All of this simply means is that, that, that nothing is ever quite what it is. Everything is what it is and also not what it is. So it's not just some religious kind of weird notion about, the dao the it's a. Uh, it's also about how we eat an apple <laughs> yeah
0: um, yeah that's
1: why everyone's always telling you the truth by the way everyone's always telling you the truth because everything they do is telling you something about their everyone themselves. is
0: always telling you the truth yeah. yes
1: not with their mouth that's the only thing the only thing they're not telling the truth with is with their what they say but they're telling the truth with the tapping of their fingers with whether they wear jeans or an apple you know
0: <laughs> yeah all right. So, how do we bring this down yes. into real life? What maybe what we're going through right now is in a culture, the the moment we're in. Um, why are you interested in talking about this right now?
1: Oh, yeah, that's a very good question. And um, yeah, and I, what something I love about what you were saying is like that this is this is relevant to everybody. Like, so the guy, the philosopher Jean Luc Marion, here I mentioned briefly. He, as soon as he starts talking like this and he calls it saturated phenomenon, he immediately goes, Hey, don't think I'm getting all religious on you. Now he happens to be religious, whatever, but he says, this is whenever you look at a piece of art, he says... If you go to if you know everything about a car engine, like you've read books on car engines, and you bring your car in to get fixed, and then you try to show off to the the mechanic that you know loads about cars, and then mm-hmm. imagine the mechanic saying, "I don't know what you call that. I have no idea what. I just have been working with engines for twenty years. I know how they work." Right? That's an influx of intuition over concept.
0: Yeah. So that okay, got it. I was wondering where you're going with the car thing, but right, the mechanic might be like. I don't know all these words that you're talking about. I just know that this is the thing that's wrong. Yes. And I don't even know why I know it.
1: And, and and for Marion, he he outlines four different types of this, what he calls saturation. And then he says, let mm. experience if, 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 it, if it exists is where all four are happening at once. <laughs> so it's a saturation of saturation. So that's his idea. But then mm. the, the, the question of, yeah, what has this got to do with life and where we're going? Um, to do that, can I talk briefly about the fourth, the fourth type of unknowing, which we haven't touched on yet, which is the most Please? interesting and I think has something really important to say today. Please. Um, this fourth one, I want to call abyssal, the abyssal unknowing or uncertainty. Mm. And whenever I mentioned earlier in the podcast about how a, a child is, they're always being looked at. And there, and that's important for them becoming a self because they become. It's not just that I am looking at other objects; is that oh, I'm an object as well. I'm a thing in the world. I exist in the world. If we don't have that, there are people who have ontological insecurity their whole lives. Um, a lot of
0: mm. what do you mean by ontological? I don't know that it's a word. Oh yeah, so it, most people have in their oh, their vernacular. Yes,
1: yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's it basically so it it's means okay. being, and uh, in philosophy, it's about the science of being. But R.D. Lang, who is a really really interesting um, uh, psychotherapist and psychiatrist, Uh, he wrote a book called The Divide Itself. And he says ontological insecurity is when your sense of being is very fluid and under threat. So this is what's called psychosis or schizoid structure. And a schizoid structure is where somebody, sometimes they don't know where they start and where they stop. Sometimes they're in their body, out of their body. They experience depersonalization, derealization. Yes. They, um, you know, those are, those are all kind of, and, and, the re, and the, there's fear of implosion where there's a sense in which they can become everything for another person. So they're terrified that they will lose their sense of identity. Um, or there's a fear of um, that, that if they lose somebody, their entire world will collapse and they will be nothing. So they have the, what's called primal agony. Sometimes even falling asleep is terrifying because there's a certain sense of will. Will I wake up? Like my sense of self is so insecure that when I fall asleep, will I will I reawake? You know, so that that's yeah. ontological insecurity, which kind of all kids have, and then as I say, many people have as adults as well, like ten percent or whatever.
0: Yeah. If you ideally, as you grow, you develop a, a appropriate sense of self. Probably
1: so. Yeah. Yes. Um. Yeah. And then. Yes.
0: you're able to relate appropriately. You're attach. You, you have appropriate. Not. I don't want to say appropriate attachments. You have s- stable attachments, yes. secure attachments, and so on. It affects almost everything yes. about the way one might experience life.
1: Absolutely. Okay. And if you don't have that, then what you have to do, which you can do very, you know, is is find artificial limbs artificial ways to do it so sometimes some people and but there's a real strength in having ontological insecurity by the way because it's more close to the truth um because the sense of self is a bit of an illusion right so that person experiences Mm -hmm. that but it comes with suffering that's the problem it's a you know they so a great artist like someone like kafka experiences ontological insecurity when you read metamorphosis or whatever you can tell he has a real sense of not not having a sense of self like it's a very ruptured schizoid sense himself. And he's a great writer. James yeah. Joyce is the same. Francis Bacon paintings. So if you look at Francis Bacon paintings, mm-hmm. they're all about ontological insecurity, you know, the dissolving of the person. Um, so, yeah. but, oh yeah. So that the infant is experiencing one of the questions of the infant for my favorite thinker, Lacan, or one of my favorite thinkers, Lacan, is um, that the, the child is always asking who am I for the other? What does the other desire of me? Because they know they're desirable. They're being looked at. They're being gazed upon. They, there's obviously a lot of desire around kids, but they're also going like, what? What exactly do they want? How can I perform? What do I need to do? And also sometimes, how can I get away from all of that desire? Right? It's it's both. If it's too, too, much, too much, too
0: overbearing, it's too much. Yeah. yeah. So again, negotiating that. the 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 closeness and uh, the distance between ourselves exactly the
1: presence and absence now the funny thing about this is what's really interesting to me hopefully it's interesting to your listeners and whatever is um, I've been trying to work out for a while. Really, kind of understand what 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 our human desire is, how it functions, and why human desire. I don't mean desire for coffee or tea. I mean sexual desire. I mean fantasies. I mean the things that you will you you know kill your own granny to do. The things that make you that mm. that kind of like disorient your life. The things that not the things that are healthy, but the things that are unhealthy things. Because okay. we often desire what we don't desire. We often fantasize about what we would not want to happen. This is, this is interesting because desire is not something. Desire is nothing in the sense of I desire what I don't have. So when you the, you desire the desire of somebody, you desire their lack. You desire the element of them that, that wants. So whenever I, you know, I think I've mentioned it before in your podcast, but the most precious material is the desire of the ones we desire. That's what we really desire. Like We desire the desire of those we desire. Um,
0: oh my God, you have to slow down on that
1: one. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, sometimes we think that what we desire is you know, money or fame or something like that. But, but the most precious material in the world is the, the desire of the one we desire. So when we, when we love someone, we desire to be the object of their desire. We desire their yeah. desire, which is yes. a very weird mix because you're desiring something that isn't something, isn't a thing. You're desiring their longing itself.
0: Yeah. You know? How strange!
1: Yeah. So here's the crazy thing, and this is what's really interesting, and um, is that, that that we we desire the desire of the one we desire. So say it's the mother, and we desire their desire, but also it can be too much, as we've talked about, and we need to, we need to differentiate, have our own space. As we grow older, um, our desires uh, are connected to this in some way. So I'm going to use an example of a guy somebody i know who when uh he was at school he went to an all-boys school and he would go to this bus stop and he would sit and wait for the bus and there was a girls school beside the boys school and so some girls would be there and one time he was at the bus stop and the girls were laughing they were looking over and laughing now they may not have even been laughing at him or whatever but he thought they were laughing at him and he was embarrassed and he left the bus stop and he walked home but then uh but this was something that repulsed him but also attracted him he was actually quite turned on by this sexually aroused by this experience right and at the same time is also being terrified of it so over analysis um and some conversations that wasn't analysis conversations really but go like what does that connect with and he would say that when he was young one of his earliest experiences is with his sister that his sister would bring round her friends and he would always want to hang out with them and they were like older than him and so they would one time they went he would knock on the door and they let him in and they were laughing at him and they were kind of making fun of him and asking him embarrassing questions and what what happened here is this this experience of his sister's desire he knew that he was the object of his sister and his sister's friends desire but he also didn't know what they desired from him what they wanted so he,
0: you don't mean sexual desire you mean like
1: yeah just no yeah just desire, interest just interest yeah so he this is pre-sexual this this original experience his second experience was like there was a, a small sexual element to it but this first experience yeah. wasn't sexual at all it was pre-sexual but it was um but he was desirous of hanging out with his sister but also a bit embarrassed and this uh the first experience is called freud called it dusting which is the abyss of the other's desire, right? What does my mother want from me? Or what does my brother want from me? What does my father want from me? What does my sister want from me? And then the technical term for the second one, which is what happened to this guy when he was older, is objet putia. It's a French term, objet putia, which just means small object a, but it's never translated because it's a technical term. And objet putia is the little thing that we're really desirous of um, that we can't quite name. And so in this example, What you see is very early on, this guy was experiencing the desire of his sibling, of his sister. Um, And he was like, what am I to my sister, right? What does she want? She's getting some pleasure, but I'm not sure what it is. And that then was mapped onto his later experience where he was saying, what do these girls at the bus stop want, right? He doesn't quite know. And it's kind of terrifying. And it's also quite attractive, right? So this, Mm -hmm. but the same question remains, is what does the other want? And this is the fourth type of unknowing uncertainty, which is the uncertainty of who am I for the other? What does my Mm. partner want from me? What does my mother want from me? What does my father want from me? What what does society want from me? Should I have this job? Do I love this person? And, And the affect of this is anxiety. So if the affect of the first uncertainty is curiosity, and the affect of the second is frustration, and the affect of the third is awe, then the affect of the fourth is technically named anxiety. Anxiety is, I don't know what I am or who I am for the other. And this is a type of radical unknowing that we all experience to greater or lesser degrees in the world. Yeah, uh, yeah I know it's interesting that's
0: that, a lot
1: that's a lot and he, and he, but here's the trick if you want to hear the the, the the secret I know the secrets very it takes a long time to actually realize this but is the, the secret is that it's not just that I don't know what the other wants the other doesn't know what they want so I'm always anxious going what does the other want of me as if they know what they want and they have this solid answer and if only I could be what they want then I'd be happy but then I realize, they don't know what they want either. They're as divided as I am and their desire is connected to what they thought their parents wanted. And we're all in this mm, thing thinking that there's- standing... That's why it's
0: called an abyss.
1: It's an abyss. That's why it's called the abyss, the abyssal. <laughs> it's, it's an encounter with a type of nothingness, a type of, we think it's there, but it's not. There is no way to be that will make you fit into society. And actually, instead of trying to adapt ourselves to the world, what we really need is productive maladaptation. You can never adapt to the world. You can never be the object of the other's whole desire, and and because they don't know what they desire, but we can somehow overcome anxiety by embracing it and enjoying the fact that we're all in the dark in the abyss together.
0: Why do we experience that anxiety? Like, why does that cause us anxiety?
1: So, uh, I would say that anxiety at its most basic. Is the experience of not knowing what we should be or who we should be. So, and in so in philosophy, it's said sometimes quite simply is like you can fear something, but you're anxious of nothing. So, in other words, you can fear being robbed, but anxiety is the fear of nothingness itself. So, anxiety is now Soren Kierkegaard says that that anxiety is the evidence of our freedom. He actually calls it spirit. What is spirit is. The fact that to be human is to not know what it is to be human. A dog is a mm. dog. A rock is a rock. A cat is a cat. You know, we don't say someone as an uncat like, oh, that cat is very in-cat. <laughs> but we talk about people being inhuman. So to be human is to be a question to yourself, to not know quite what you should do, who you should be, where you fit in. And the genius of Kierkegaard is he says, this is why we should never try to overcome our anxiety. Because if we overcome our anxiety, the, the payoff is being in a zombified uh, catatonic state. Rather, we overcome anxiety by somehow allowing it to breathe, by, by, mm. by bringing it into us, by saying, oh, this is evidence of our freedom, that we, we none of us quite know what we should do. All of us have imposter syndrome. All of us feel like we don't quite, did we act correctly at the party? Um, I saying quite the right thing. I went to a party recently that was really fun, but I felt at the end for some reason that I had maybe said something that 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 was inappropriate to the host. And I'm going like, so like mm-hmm. and I'm sitting there thinking. And but probably everybody at the party in different ways comes back going, "Did I, you know, was I okay? You know, this this is it is being you. Can
0: you imagine if we could witness like those a- bubbles above people's heads of just anxiety meters and the scripts at a party? It would be <laughs> so fucking funny. The the I like I want to just comment on what you said because yes, this, in, when you experience anxiety, it is this the the. The utter frustration of it is that it doesn't have a name. Mm. When you can name, if there is something you're actually afraid of, you feel better because then you can reason through that, you can talk about it, you can pin it, you can contain it. It's got a container then, but the true anxiety has no container and, and then that is the anxiety part. It's just mm. this dread or this doom or this feeling that, that something is just
1: wrong yes yes a hundred percent and this is and this is why this last one in particular i think is important to think about for today because our we want to avoid this anxiety at all costs and and kind of think that we know what the other wants and what we want and and then we can condemn people we think they're this and they're that and we create purity cultures of clean and unclean of inside and outside all ways of avoiding anxiety of saying that that to a certain extent, right, we're all in a society together. We're all neighbors. You don't have to like your neighbor, right? But we're not enemies. An enemy is someone you can get rid of and destroy. A neighbor is someone you have to share social space with, that we're
0: Mm.
1: in this environment of, like, where we're having to navigate each other. And there's an idea, there's a book that's coming out soon called by Richard Boothby called Embracing the Void. And in this, he argues that love of neighbor, at at its most basic, what, what it means to love the neighbor to be able to confront the abyss of their desire and be able to you know not reduce them to some sort of expression of yourself or whatever is to somehow to love your neighbors not to love them in so much as they're like you is to love them in their abyssal dimension in their in their anxieties in their unknowing to Mm -hmm. somehow be able to tolerate that and to argue and discuss with them and this is where I think in a, in a society that cannot tolerate anxiety, some of the results are over-prescription of drugs, um, scapegoating of people who are different from us, um, mm-hmm. and uh, you know a desire to lock ourselves away from those difficult encounters.
0: Yeah, and so do you? F- I don't know that you have the answer to this, but maybe you have some thoughts. Are we? Are we actually more anxious now than we've ever been, or are we, or, or are have we just pathologized anxiety?
1: Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, so in Paul Tillich's book, *The Courage to Be*, he he beautifully um, kind of articulates that anxiety manifests in different ways in in our lives, both historically and individually, and he outlines three. Um, and they are historical but also you can you can maybe see yourself in one of them more than another. one is the anxiety of death which is because death is an ultimate nothingness so we're all hurtling right. towards a potential nothingness even if there's something on the other side we're not sure so it's like and there is so we're kind of like there's a type of anxiety over death then he says but, and, and that was a big anxiety, especially if you live in a society where people are dying young, where maybe you have a family where you expect three of your kids to die, uh, where death is all around you, that anxiety is going to be pretty strong. Then he says that there's the anxiety of guilt. And the anxiety of guilt is also a type of nothingness, because to be guilty is to say, I am not who I should be. I am somehow lacking in, you know, I imagine this is who I should be and I'm not it. And so there's guilt. And guilt has a historical moment. And you think of the birth of Lutheranism and, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he says there's the anxiety of meaninglessness where you kind of feel that your life lacks meaning or purpose, which he thinks is connected mm-hmm. to the modern world, right? Which I think is very interesting. I was going to say, yeah. that's,
0: that feels like the modern affliction and almost like a, a, a absurd, like... Effect of modernity, yes, of things going so well, yes,
1: yes, yes, that
0: we have this new anxiety that's arisen because we're not just trying to survive. You know, I was listening to this uh, talk the other day uh, with Sam Harris, how the the long course of history up and it was only up until the last hundred years or so where the norm was war. Yeah. The norm uh, was that's what people expected. And and there were brief periods of peace, but you always kind of knew that they were brief periods that, that, that the norm, the default was, was to be in war, Mm -hmm. to be in battle. And so this kind of absurd, I guess it's a product of modernity is that we, you know, we, we, we have so much freedom. We have so much that there's space to argue about, (laughs)
2: <laughs> it's just
0: that to feel the meaninglessness because there's so many choices there's so many options to pursue there's so many ways to go wrong and like you said that our our culture is structured around the ability like we we can very easily check out of our experience at any time we can we can create liturgical structures where we don't have to we can avoid yeah Forever until it becomes so painful to avoid.
1: Yeah, and, that and a, we have and a, to do something different. Yeah, and another element of modernity that that I think is really really important, and uh, philosopher Heidegger brings us out to a certain extent, is that there's a, there's kind of worldviews that can exist at times, and one of the worldviews that we live in, and a worldview is like a, um, it's like the water you swim in. You kind of don't see it. It's it's like it, an
0: ideology. Yeah, it's ideology not. exactly. Just that's like
1: yeah. what you see through, and one of the one of the the predominant notions is. You'll notice this when people talk about, say, optimizing their life or life hacks or whatever. Is that, that there is a certain sense in which we have turned ourselves? We start to think of ourselves in mechanistic ways. Mm-hmm. There is a yeah, so we start to treat ourselves and each other in a very crudely materialistic way. And there is so some of the existentialists bring this out very powerfully, um, from Sartre to Gabriel Marcel to Camus, all of these. They they basically say that that we're living in a strange age where we we like I say treat ourselves. And whenever I with when people talk about optimizing and making yourself optimize your productivity and stuff like that, it's <laughs> yeah. like we're yeah. there's something that ultimately meaningless in this. It's like it's you think you're doing something meaningful. I'm trying to optimize my life, I'm trying to life hack, I'm trying to be productive, I'm trying to do this or do that. Um there's something about where we're missing just the mystery of being. To sit mm. in silence and be unproductive and to experience what we've been talking about, which is this learned unknowing, this, this experience of something that cannot be grasped. That's not the realm of theism or atheism, but it's the realm of human subjectivity. Um, yeah. And so, And the beautiful thing about Tillich is he says in all of these, the point is not to get rid of them, but to find a way to tarry with them. Um, it is, by the way, it's all. It's, it's possible that science may may effectively abolish physical death, but it still won't abolish lack,
0: meaninglessness. And,
1: yes, it can't. It can't abolish the dusting or the objet a. Eh? So uh, you know, it's like uh, you know Nietzsche yeah. said. Um, he, there's a famous parable of this king king midas i think who captures a demon and enforces the demon to tell him what the secret of a happy life is and the demon laughs and says oh it's already beyond you why do you ask i mean it's to never have been born but he says but you know if you're lucky you can die soon right (laughs) and what i love about this parable is if you could extend your life indefinitely but you cannot enjoy your life that would not be heaven that would be hell right there's something about about eternal life is not about mere longevity. It's about a type of infinite depth in the moment at one point mm-hmm. in temporality. And, mm-hmm. and, and for me to experience that, that depth is not an avoidance of our anxiety, but in some way making peace with our anxiety.
0: Yeah. I want to go down so many rabbit holes, but we'll try, I'll try to just Land this plane somewhere. <laughs> I, what, what I was just thinking, as you were saying that, is we I would, we need a voice in the middle because I don't think productivity, you know, productivity as a means to just getting more things done. Let's yeah. say is, eh, but but we also it, the, the answer is also not to not do anything. Yes.
1: Oh yes, yes, we
0: like doing things. We like having goals. We like working towards things. Like and and so there's this there's been a lot of books that have come out as a as sort of a, a reaction to this hyper uh way the modern, you know, ethos on productivity which is like how to do nothing. Oh, yeah. And uh-huh. I'm you, you know, you can't just show up at work and say, you know, I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to um I don't feel like participating in the capitalist superstructure today. Sorry, yes. boss. You know, like that's it's just my phil- philosophy now, and I'm gonna, you know, I'm I'm practicing doing nothing. Like that's not actually what we want either. Yes. Yes. So yes. we, I, I, am I'm, I'm hopeful that there'll be voices. You know, you're you're probably one of them that can speak that to to both things. Yes. That the the answer is including you know, that productivity for productivity's sake isn't great and there's definitely hustle culture and burnout culture and we're experiencing that. And also, we can't unring the bell of modernity. We're here. It's, it's unrealistic to think that that we're going to go back too far into to history. Um, and so how, you know, I, 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 I believe productivity – can be a spiritual practice yeah. too, if you're, if you think of it through the
1: right lens. So, you know, for me, uh, one of the interesting things, say, say someone wants to be a writer. Uh, I knew this, uh, uh, this friend of mine, she wanted to be, she wanted to write this children's book and she had it in her mind. Um, but she never wrote it. And she, you know, there was always an excuse, like, uh, you know, the kids, family, did it, all of this, but actually it was a very short book. It was a book because it was for really young children. It was going to be like probably 500, a thousand words, but it would be with illustrations. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But what, what I realized through talking to her is that she had this kind of fantasy that writing the book would somehow fix everything that was bad in her family life and relationship. And so what she didn't know this consciously, but unconsciously, Having that fiction, that dream was was giving her a certain pleasure. If only I did this, everything would be great. but there was a knowledge that if she did do it, of course it wouldn 't fix everything right so mm. her her very fantasy her fantasy was what she wanted, not the productivity Now over time um, I was trying to help her see that that the book won 't fix everything and but in that knowledge, that makes it more likely for her to write the book. So for, because if you think that the, the, like even my, my PhD supervisor once said to me, said, my, your PhD is going to be the worst thing you write. And I, that freed me up so much because if I have. Right, that know, freed you up. <laughs> yes. The fantasy of like writing the perfect PhD is actually what prevents you. So for me, a yeah, productivity weirdly is connected to giving up the kind of the fantasy that, that we can be whole and complete. It's almost like, no, we're, we're mm. the, the, the books that you write, the music, you, whatever you pursue, being a good chef, a good father, a good mother, the value is in it, but it doesn't, not as an escape from the difficulties of life, but rather what kind of enhances those dimensions of life. So, yeah.
0: Very well said. Yeah. yeah. That's a topic I, I would love to dig into. Maybe next time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, this is a great pl- place to end because don't you think? For me, the creativity is the closest we get to living on the edge between certainty and uncertainty, or mm-hmm. approaching the the land of uncertainty. It's 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 where it's sort of the ultimate vulnerability, but also the ultimate flow place.
1: <laughs> yes, and allow for novelty and impossibility. I, that's the something that we're we're sometimes frightened of is like we want that's why people sometimes we go to you know you know we do lots of things from tarot cards to reading the back of the gideon's bible it gives you an answer to every question or we get advice off somebody because sometimes we want someone else to tell us what we should do we want to kind of close down we want to kind of have the answer but there's something wonderful and scary about uh about uh about surprise, about novelty about unfortunately not knowing exactly what you should do in the present moment and and taking and taking that into your body and kind of like uh, kind of being able to have the courage of that unknowing but yes exactly mm-hmm. when you're able to do that that's that's the creative. That's where the creative stuff happens. Um, whenever yeah. you don't know what the future holds, whenever, even as you say, even the past is changeable. Like we think, oh, the future might not be set, but the past is set. But no, if, you, if you've been single for 10 years and really depressed and really lonely and thought that life was meaningless and then you meet somebody that last 10 years becomes this incredible period right. of waiting, longing of, of developing to that moment that so all of, it's a, the person you meet does not just change your present. They also transfigure your past and your future.
0: Yes. That's such a, yeah, that's such a good way of putting it. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, previews of upcoming guests, invites to join me for members only events, and access to our members only community where I hang out a lot. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means that we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want. But it also means we're 100% reliant on your support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member, or you can simply make a one-time donation of as little as $5. I cannot stress this enough. You can make a huge difference for as little as $5 please head over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael El and I dreamed up this show, and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True.